Well, as you can see, it's a holiday weekend, but there's a lot of stuff going on. So hopefully you participate in that. Ushers, come forward. We'll share in our offering together this morning. Uh, thank you for being here. Thank you for your gifts and for giving. Uh, one of the things I just remind you of as we give together, uh, M25, I know you heard that and saw the signs for next week, but I would just ask that to, for those of you who are here in person, um, go big, go big next week as far as M25. Uh, there's a huge need out there. We want to meet that need and we're thrilled that we get to be a part of the team that meets that need. And so if you grab a bag on your way out, shopping list is available, go out, get those groceries uh, and make a difference. It really does make a difference. And so thank you for that. So good morning to you. Happy New Year. So how many of you stayed up till midnight? You welcomed in the new year. How many of you stayed up last night? Okay, half you. And how many of you who raised your hand, how many of you fell asleep at least once while you were waiting? Yeah, yeah. So how many of you plan to sleep during the sermon this morning? Please raise your hand. Oh, what's wrong with you people? Well, good morning to you. You've made it. We've made it through Christmas. Uh, we're almost now, uh, you know, off and running fully into the new year. We got day one here. And thank you for choosing to come and to worship with us and be a part of the day. Now, I want to go back to Christmas Eve just real quickly. I want to highlight a couple of pieces because what we're going to talk about this morning ties right into where we started on Christmas Eve. So just in case you weren't here and even if you were, come some reminders here along the way. Now, if you're with us, you remember we looked at the Christmas story and we saw some important truths in that Christmas story. We didn't just tell the story of uh, the, the birth of Christ and, you know, yes, it happened and we didn't try to sell anything, but we tried to stop and look at the story to see truths for us today. And our whole theme was, you know, what do you do when life messes up your plans? And we use the life of Mary and Joseph. Now, we learned in that time together is that no one has to teach you this, but we all understand this pretty quickly, that the best laid plans you have can go south in a heartbeat, right? The best plans you put in place. Now, Christmas is behind you. Some of you can look back over the past week and you can see the things that went wrong, the things you didn't think would go wrong, all the things you want to have right. Magnify that past Christmas. Look at a lifetime. And you can see all the different times where you had plans in place, where you thought it would go a certain way. Your life uh, tra trajectory had a, had a plan that was like this, but it went like this or this way or that way. You get that. You understand. They don't want to teach us that. And we learned from Mary and Joseph that life does have a way of messing up your plans. Here's a young couple engaged to be married, and all of a sudden there's a pregnancy, a virgin pregnancy. Certainly, their plans were messed up. We also learn, remember, that God can mess up our plans. Uh, he has the authority, he has the power to stop and do something in your life to mess up your plans and send you a new direction. But we also learn that typically God doesn't have to do it. We mess up our plans just fine. Not only do we do it, other people come along, make decisions that can mess up our life plans. So when life plans get all messed up, uh, you didn't plan on losing a spouse early in life. You didn't plan on a divorce. That was not part of your life dream. Losing a child was not part of something that you thought of. A marital conflict, kids in trouble, losing your job. There's a lot of things that can go south. And when that happens, we talked about, okay, when life messes up your plans, what do you do right then? And we talked about these three things. When those moments happen, we said it's critical that you remember three things. The first thing we said is remember in those moments of life, God wants your attention. 
When something you had planned in place, everything's going to go just fine, and it all goes south in that moment, and you find yourself saying, oh no, what do I do now? God wants your attention. Now, the second thing we learn, and the reason he wants your attention, is because he has a different plan than your plan. A different plan. And I would remind you what we learned as well. That different plan is a better plan than your plan. It's a greater plan than your plan. It's more rewarding than your plan. And I really do mean this when I say this. I understand that for some of us, that's hard to grasp because the marital plan we had or the plan for our children seemed like a really great plan. How does God have a greater plan than that? Somewhere along the way, we learn along the way that you have to trust him with the plan. And you have to trust that his plan is not only different, but greater and bigger and more rewarding. And that is that third thing that we learned. You have to trust God with a plan. You see, you can't ever fully trust your plans, right? And the reason for that is because there are so many variables that you can't control. I can have the best plans in the world, but the truth of it is I control so very little of life. So you can't ever depend completely on your plan. God's plans always work. God's plan is always perfect. God's plans never fail. So last week, that whole thing we talked about at Christmas Eve, that covers what to do in the immediate moment. When all of a sudden it falls apart, what do you, you remember those things right then. God's trying to get my attention. I can trust him with a plan. It's a different plan. That's what you do in that moment. And any of you who have known me for any length of time know that one of the things I try to do in my preaching and one of the things I try to do in my teaching is to go beyond just a cerebral thought process and say, well, practically, what do you do? See, it's one thing to say, here's what you do in the moment, remember these three things, but then what happens next week after you remember those three things? You know, I remember them, but now what? And so what I want to do this morning, I want to take the next step to the now what, if you will, and I want to give you some help, some action steps. So this morning, let's talk about how to rebuild, how to rebuild after life has messed up your plans, how to rebuild in that moment. And there's a lot of things that can fall apart, right? Relationships can fall apart, future dreams, families, marriages, uh, you know, events, you name it. So how do you rebuild? In the moment, you remember, God wants my attention. God has a plan, all of that. But then what? How do you start? How do you keep going? Now, I want you to remember something. God's word has the power to rebuild your life stronger and better than it ever was before. God's word has the power to put you back together again, even better than before. God's word's it. You got to be in it. But that'd be, real, that'd be real simple and easy for me to say, there you go, amen. Uh, it was a busy week. I didn't have much time to prepare. So here's my message for today. Read God's word. You'll be fine, amen, and send you on your way. I'll give you a little more than that. But I have to tell you, I have to tell you, if you walk out of here going, well, that was really good, and you don't get into God's word, you need to know you're going to be back at square one. You're back at zero. So there's more to it. God's word's a starting place. Now, I want to use, uh, before I get into our text this morning, I want to use as our text, as our example, uh, a guy in a story by the name of Nehemiah. I'm going to use the book of Nehemiah. We studied him some years ago, but I want to go back and touch on a couple of pieces because it's pretty critical to this next step, if you will. Now, let me give you real quickly, let me remind some of you some of the story of Nehemiah so you know exactly what happened, you know where he's at in the Bible, where he came from, and all that background. So real quickly, here's here's the historical background. You might remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about the fact of Israel, 
the nation of Israel um, had come together and they had a kingdom. And you might remember going back some time that God's plan for Israel all along was that God would be their king. They wouldn't have an earthly king. God would be their king. And they hated that idea because they wanted to be like everyone else. Don't forget, they spent 400 years in, in, in captivity uh, as slaves in Egypt, and they saw in Egypt they had a king. All the nations have kings. And so they want an earthly king. And God kept saying, listen, I'll be your king, and I will get it right. And if you have an earthly king, kings do this. They tax you. They take things from you. All this list of things. And the people still said they wanted an earthly king. So God gave them what they asked for, earthly king. Speed the clock up. The kings didn't follow God. The kings didn't listen to God. They had, some, they had a golden era there between David and Solomon. They had a golden era, but things fell apart. The kingdom's in, in ruins. And in fact, the kingdom splits in two. And so there's a northern kingdom of Israel and there's a southern kingdom of Israel. And if you remember some of this history we talked about, there's utter chaos because they're not following God. And the northern kingdom is overtaken by the Assyrians. The Assyrians come down and completely conquer the northern kingdom of Israel. So now it's another 300 years worth of chaos. And you have the southern kingdom still going strong, but not really all that strong because they too are not following God. So what happens, the Babylonians come and they conquer the southern kingdom. But the Babylonians might recall, we've, we've used this in the storyline before, they did something kind of different in the process. They didn't just go conquer the country. They didn't just go take over the country. They went and conquered the kingdom, but they did something unusual, and that is this. They left the country stand. They didn't kill all the people. They didn't take everybody captive, no. But what they did is this. They went in, and they took out of the country everyone and anyone that was smart, brilliant leader, whatever it might be. They came in, they took out all of the, they took with them all the young and upcoming leaders, they took all the present leaders, all the business people, all the professionals, all the educators, all the religious leaders, all the entrepreneurs, they took all of them. They took all of them to Babylon because they're going to use them to make Babylon even stronger, which left absolutely no leadership back in the country of Israel. Now, please know, they still ruled Israel, they still ruled the kingdom, but they virtually let, let, it, let them go to themselves because they had taken all the leadership with them. That's the plan. So they left Judah, they left the southern kingdom in complete disarray. Not to mention the fact, if you read the history, they totally destroyed Jerusalem. Remember Jerusalem, all these huge walls, they tore down all of the walls and completely destroyed the temple. Now just going to side note for you, to tear down the walls of Jerusalem and to destroy the temple is no easy thing. See, in our minds we think, hey, we go, we tear the walls down. But remember some of the wall stones in the temple along, some of them 40 feet, 44 feet long, um, 11 feet high, 15 feet deep of solid stone. My point is this, if you're going to destroy a building built with rocks like that, that's no easy job. I mean, you got to get teams of people and engineers together just to figure out how to tip it all over. And so it would take months, years to do the destruction that they had seen happen, that we have seen happen in Jerusalem and in, of course, the Temple Mount. So that's what they did. Left it in utter ruins. Now, speed the clock along, and there's another group comes along, the Persians. The Persians become very strong very quickly. Like in 100 years, they become a, power, a huge power force. And they actually come and they conquer the Babylonians. Now, the Persians are in charge. But this is where, this is where Nehemiah comes in the story. But the Persians have kind of a softer view of Israel. 
a softer view of the Jewish people. They, they begin thinking to themselves, we really don't need all these people. We don't really need them serving us and, and we'll release them. We'll let them go back to their country. So that was their thought process. And here comes Nehemiah in the story. Nehemiah was one of these Jewish guys that had been birthed and taken in captive and grown up in that, in that realm of the Babylonians. And now he finds himself as the cupbearer to the king of Persia. Now, the cupbearer, well, if you might recall, the cupbearer is actually a pretty substantial job. It's one of the highest positions you could have. You're the one who serves the king his wine. Now, you think, well, how hard is that job? Pretty important since you have to taste the wine first. Some of you are thinking, hey, good gig, except for if it's poisoned, you die before the king. See, that's kind of the idea of the cupbearer. You're protecting the king. Now, not only do you have this job to protect the king and serve him just the best wine and to watch the vineyards as they're being grown and taken care of, and then, of course, you're tasting it before he gets it. But on top of that, one of the reasons why this job was so cool and so good to have is that you're in constant contact with the king all the time. Don't forget water was at a premium, so the drink of the day was wine, which means the cupbearer was in the presence of the king all the time. And so as the cupbearer and the king would grow together in relationship, oftentimes the cupbearer became the guy the king talked to, the guy that he would confide in, just the ongoing daily conversation. So Nehemiah has a pretty important job. One day Nehemiah walks in, he looks sad. In fact, if you read the story, we can't read it all the time ways this morning, but if you read the story, one day Nehemiah comes in and he looks sad and the king says, man, all these years you've served me, I've never seen you look like this, what's going on? And Nehemiah recounts the story, and the story that he recounts is simply this, he said that I, I have heard news of Jerusalem and the walls are destroyed and the gates are destroyed, and it breaks my heart and I'm so sad about all of this, and um, the king says, well, what do you want me to do? And Nehemiah begins the story to say, listen, with your permission, I'd like to go back and I'd like to build, rebuild the walls. And the king says, yeah, you go. And then he says, on top of that, on top of that could, could you give me a letter so that I could get the workers to work for us and a letter I can take to the, to the one who oversees your forest and get lumber and all the materials I need? And the king did all of that for him. And so off he goes. Now, before we dig in further, so there's the background. Here's how Nehemiah comes into the story. So he's, he's one of these captives, but is allowed to go back and begin this process of going back to Jerusalem. But now, before we get in too much further, um, there's now a couple statements that, that I need to make for you. I'm going to help you get started, but I need you to remember a couple of things. The first thing is this, putting it all back together, whatever the it is. Whether it's the relationship, whether it's the, your finances, whether it's your life dreams, whatever it might be, putting it all back together does not mean that it's going to look like it was originally. You know that, right? Putting it all back together doesn't mean it's going to look like that. Putting it all back together doesn't mean that it's going to have the same feel, same look, and it's going to be just like it was before. That is not going to be the case. Now, believe it or not, it can be even better than before, even though before it was really great but it's not going to be the same. And some of us will get stuck on that because see, for some of us, I just want to get back to the way that it was. So rebuilding doesn't mean that it'll be exactly like it was. I also need to tell you that rebuilding is not simply rewinding it and pretending that it never happened. I see so many people that want to rebuild life and they just kind of put the rewind and they try to act as if everything's back to normal. Well, you know better than that. So stop pretending that. It's just not going to be the same. God has something new to do in your life, something fresh to do, something that you could not possibly have imagined. 
So let's watch and see what he does. So how do we start? How do we start rebuilding? Let's go to our text, Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 3. So they said to me, stop right there real quickly. So Nehemiah serving as the cupbearer and some of the people that Nehemiah knows who are coming back from Jerusalem, they come and give him a report. So that's who they are. So they said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the providence, in the providence are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. And when I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Now, I have to admit that when I look at the reaction of Nehemiah, if I look at the starting place of rebuilding, I'm a little surprised because I tend to think like this, some of us do as well, that for a lot of us, our thought process is the starting place of rebuilding is just get at it. It's just get at it. You know, for a lot of us, the thought process says, hey, it's broken. We got to fix it. You know, we have this attitude which says, you know, uh, no sense crying over spilled milk. Let's just get at this thing. And so let's get organized and let's go to it. And what's interesting about this is Nehemiah was a great leader. Nehemiah was a, a, a great strategist. Um, he would lead them in rebuilding the wall. He'd put armies together to protect them. I mean, he was quite masterful. But what's interesting to me is the first thing that he does in rebuilding is the first thing we need to do. And it says the first thing he did was what? Mourn. The first thing he did was mourn. See, most of us don't want to do that. We want to get at it. We feel better if we can just start rebuilding. We can start better if we can just start cleaning up the milk. And the first thing we learn is the first step in rebuilding is mourning. Mourning is expressing your hurt to God. It's talking to God, saying, God, this hurts. God, I hate this. I didn't bargain for this. This pain is too much. And yes, in mourning, you can even say, God, what are you doing? I don't like this at all. This is so critical. Unless you mourn that which you have lost, you will never go and find that which is waiting for you in the future. Unless you mourn that which is lost. What happens is you will be forever stuck in your hurt, ever, always stuck in the pain, always stuck in what, what could have been or what should have been, what you've lost. You'll be stuck there. You'll be stuck in your hurt because all you'll see is your hurt. Now, I also need to tell you, though, there's another reason why mourning is so important. I mean, one reason is that if you don't mourn, you get stuck there. But another key piece is this. When you mourn, you open the door for God's comfort and God's strength. You know that, right? That when you mourn, you actually invite God into your life to do something. Listen to Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. Blessed are those who what? Mourn. What do they find? They will be comforted. You see, there's a critical piece of mourning that we, don't, that we oftentimes forget. Because, you see, we want to get through it quickly. And what God says, when you take time to mourn, you actually are inviting me in. You want comfort from God? Mourn with God. Now, let me say that we Americans aren't very good at mourning. And if you're a man, you've got two strikes against you. If you're a man, A, you're American, and B, you're a man. And we don't do this really well. You see, the problem that most of us have when we come to mourning, we want our mourning to be fast and clean. I want to get in, I want to get out. You know, pass me a tissue and let's get back to work. We want to kind of get over it quickly. So our mourning is, is kind of artificial. 
If you're, and then on top of that, if you're actually around people who actually are in mourning and actually are mourning and they're mourning publicly, they're mourning like they normally would, like the biblically would, we would, we would uh, teach that public kind of a mourning. If we're around them, we're totally uncomfortable with that and we don't want to be around them. I mean, they're just bringing me down. And so our mourning thing's not very good. And it's not that our mourning is complete. It's not that we say, well, I don't need to mourn because I had my moment and I'm over it. It's not that it's complete. It's that what we try to do is we try to hide our mourning. We try to internalize our mourning. And just so you know, it ends up being inside. And when it's inside, it's just plain destructive. And other cultures around the world, they get this mourning thing pretty well. I mean, they have prescribed ways in which to mourn. You're going to mourn for eight months. You're going to wear black. You're going to do... Uh, we lived in Little Italy in uh, our first church. And I've shared this before that literally our home, we were the only English-speaking home in probably two blocks. Now, they spoke English as a second language, not as a first language. We spoke only a language, which was, which was you know, English. Everyone else spoke Italian as their primary. And right immediately around us, they didn't speak any English. Uh, our one neighbor would come into our house uh, in the summertime about every day. And he wouldn't knock. He would come in our back door and he would say something in Italian. It seemed sweet. He would say something and he'd walk into our kitchen with a handful of vegetables from his garden. He'd put them in the sink. He'd wash them. Didn't matter what we were doing. Didn't matter what we were wearing. Didn't matter where we were. He just came in. He'd say, good morning. And he'd wash his dishes, his vegetables. Then he'd walk back out. I said, thank you. I think he understood that. But that was it. He had us over for coffee one day. We thought we should go. We went over and sat down and had espresso for two hours. And there wasn't one single word they said I understood. And nothing I said they understood. The only thing they understood is when they offered me coffee, I'm not a coffee drinker. When they offered me espresso, I said no. I knew, they, I knew that registered because they looked like I had just killed their puppy. <laughs> and so I quickly said, no, no, yes, 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 you know. And so I, I'm, I'm, you know, they brought me sugar and cream. And then I said, no sugar and cream. They looked at me like, what's wrong with you? No one drinks espresso without sugar and cream. I just drank it because I was supposed to. It was horrible. <laughs> but that was our relationship with him in, in, in the context of that no one spoke the language. And so there we were. And what would take place along the way is we'd have these moments where we would be sitting together and talking together and expressing hurt because they had lost a family member. And I didn't even know how to do that except for I watched their culture and though I couldn't speak their language for weeks, months, she wore black every day. Black every day. And every day, even though there was some progressive moment, you knew there was a mourning taking place. And I gotta be honest with you, I didn't know what to do with it, but it looked like it was working. We don't do that well. We don't have a morning ritual, if you will. We kind of have an attitude that says, well, let's just get done with it. Let's get over it and, and let's get back in with it. And it's not that our morning, as I said, is complete. It's that we internalize it. And then what happens is it just destroys us inside. We need some good models. We want some great models on how to mourn. Go look in the Old Testament. Go look at the example of Abraham when, when he lost his wife, Sarah. There's a good model how to mourn. Go look at a guy named Mordecai who actually mourns what, is, what he sees is going to be the complete destruction of a nation. Watch how he mourns. And there's some modeling for us to be looking at. They took time to mourn. Days, weeks, months, even longer. They didn't hide it. 
And everyone knew how they felt. That's the mourning piece. Internalizing your grief is not brave. Hear that? Internalizing your grief is not brave. It's not strength. It's not spiritual. It's dumb. And it's destructive. Mourning is not pretty, but it is healing. But now also look at what's also included in the text. Back to the text in, in, uh, in Nehemiah 1 verse 4. When I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. So crying is a part of that, weeping. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Let me give you a statement for each of these things. Mourning is expressing our pain to God. That's the mourning piece. Fasting is focusing my heart towards God. And prayer is asking God for help. Now, let me kind of, let me get, say a couple things about the, the fasting and the prayer piece. First, fasting is focusing your heart toward God. Joel chapter 2, verse 12, even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart with fasting and weeping and mourning. You see, what's interesting for us, most people, we hear the word fast or fasting. And for most of us today, we think of a medical term. We think we're fasting because we have some medical, you know, you know, test coming up. We're going to have blood work done or we think we're body cleanse, whatever it might be. But let me be clear and bold here. This is where some of us will never get past the morning piece. This is why some of us will never get past the morning and they'll never rebuild because we don't take some next steps where we begin to get off of the pain and begin to focus our thoughts on the God who is the God of healing. And so that's what, that's what fasting does. It begins to move our attention. Let me talk about food for just a moment. Some of us, when we mourn, we just stop eating. Some of us, when life messes up our plans, we just stop eating. Uh, we don't eat because of sadness. We've lost our appetite. We just can't eat. We don't care about it anymore. Well, that's not good. But if you're not going to eat, then at least I would say, let's make it spiritually positive. Others of us, when we mourn, we can't stop eating. That's why it's called comfort food. You know, some of you even look to mourn. It's like, what can I mourn about today? All right? So for some of us, and that's not good either. But how about a helping of a spiritual helping of God's grace at work? So, so what, what is fasting? Fasting is deliberately saying, I'm going to take the mealtime. I'm going to take this moment where I would normally eat. And instead, I'm going to focus on God. It's a fast all day. You can fast for a meal. But he said, I practice this where I normally would sit down to eat. I'm practicing this piece where I just instead sit down and focus on God. Think about God. Sit in quietness with God. Focus on him and let him speak to me in the moment. Kind of a side note for you. For some of us, we could use a fast from entertainment, not just from food. For some of us, we could use a fast from our computer, a fast from our phones, a fast from our television sets, a fast from our news feeds, a fast from our sporting events, a fast for our hobbies, our fast for whatever else keeps us busy. Listen, when you take time to fast, to substitute that time for focusing on God and not that plate of whatever that you put in your life, God will meet you there. God will show up. Some of you will never get to that point. Because you'll keep your focus on that which is lost as opposed to beginning to focus on God. But then talk about prayer real quickly. What prayer is? Prayer is asking God for help. Prayer, asking God for help. This is not a prayer of God, what are you doing? God, what are you thinking here? That's the morning. That's the morning piece. This is the prayer that says, God, 
I can't do this. God, I am broken. Did you ever have one of those moments in your life, and many of you have, where the plans are so messed up, you sit there and you just say, God, I'm just broken here. I'm broken. I, I, I don't know what to do. I don't know how it's ever going to be different because I'm just broken. This is a sincere prayer that says, God, I cannot do this on my own. God, I need your strength. Psalm 28, verse 1. Lord, my rock, I call out to you for help. Please don't be deaf to me. This is this moment of desperation where we say, God, I just can't do this. Let me give you a little story. It'll make you smile, but hopefully, hopefully make you smile also sad at the same time. His name is Gordon Bushnell. You can go back and look. I think, I think he died back in the early 80s. But uh, the story of Gordon Bushnell, he lived outside of Duluth, Minnesota. He was a farmer early in his life. Then he worked for the state building highways. And then he actually left that and became a senator in the state of Minnesota. He lived in Duluth. And he had, just as he was retiring, about 60 years old, he had a thought. And that is there needs to be a highway built. A highway between Duluth, Minnesota and Fargo. North Dakota. And if you look on a map, you'll find it's almost a straight line. It's almost, I mean, almost right across from each other, straight line across. And his thought was, and he got other people to agree with him, there needs to be a highway, a highway directly linking the two, 239 miles. He worked in the highway department, so he built roads, so he knew what, what it would take. He petitioned the state. The state said, no, not necessary. So he appealed again and petitioned again. They kept saying, no, finally. I said, listen, we're not going to build a road. We're not going to build a highway. A highway is not needed between Duluth, Minnesota, and Fargo. So at 60 years old, he decided he'll build a highway himself. Now, not pay for the highway himself. Build the highway himself. And so, very sincerely, you can go read up the story in the archives. So with a shovel, a wheelbarrow, and an old John Deere tractor, Gordon started building his highway. Friends, he got up and he worked on that highway, his road, every single day for 20 years. Every single day. There's numbers of interviews with him. He seems to be a coherent guy. You know, he seems normal. Interviewed his wife where she says, yeah, I wish he wouldn't, but it makes him happy. So, okay, every single day he goes out with his shovel, quite literally, a shovel, a wheelbarrow, and a John Deere, old John Deere tractor, and he worked on his road. He worked on that road for 20 years, right up until a heart attack and death finally caused him to stop. In 20 years, he built nine miles. Nine miles of road, which is pretty significant. That's 15, 15 feet a day of all the days that he would put in. He had a nine-mile road, but that still left 230 miles to go. Friends, some of us, are working really, really, really hard to figure out some new plan and how to build it and how to get it going. And on your own, you can work on it even for a lifetime, but you need to know if you're doing it on your own, you're only going to get nine miles and you still have 230 to go. And you're not going to see it complete. Lord, I cannot do this alone. I need you. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19 I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Friends, when I say to you, you can't do it alone, 
prayer asks God for help, and you do you realize what you're asking God to do is to release in your life the same power that released Christ from the grave. That's an incredible thing if you understand it. And so that's that starting place. Hey, listen, nine miles is great, good for you. But you can't imagine what God wants to do in your life with his power. You can't imagine how he can rebuild your life. You know, right now, the grief might be blinding you to what God is able to do. Now, but here's the next part of the plan. The first part, how do you start? You start with mourning. And with that mourning, with fasting and prayer, that's how you start. But the next question is this, well, then how do you keep it going? Because quite honestly, in my own life, I can get some, pro- some forward progress going, but then I get this fear at times that says, well, how do I keep the energy going? I don't want it to die on me here. So I'll give you the simple word answer for this. You can read the book of Nehemiah. You'll see it all throughout the story. The answer to the next step is how do you keep it all going? The word is worship. It's as simple as that. It's as powerful as that. Worship him. Worship him with other believers. Worship him in a small group. Worship him in a men's group. Worship him in a woman's group. Worship him with other high school students. Worship him with other young adults. Worship him at home. Worship him alone. Worship him in your car. Worship him. The way that you maintain the strength that God says is available to you and the power he's available to you is you worship him. Sing. Put on some music. Your favorite worship music, get alone and just sing to him. Read God's word. Read the Psalms. Worship him. But understand that worship is, is the key. No question about it. But let me give you two other things, two very specific things that I've seen in my life work, but I've also seen all throughout Nehemiah's story. I'm going to give you two specific things to do because I'm a doer. Most of us would like to have something to put in action. So I'll give you two things to do. One, worship covers it all, but specifically doing this along the way. When you're in the rebuild time, take time to say thank you. Take time to say thank you. You say, well, thank God. Yeah, him too. But actually be thankful and say thank you to the people who are in your life. Be thankful and say thank you to the people who are around you. The Apostle Paul, he's being persecuted, he's being imprisoned. He was now left alone because he was allowed to have people around him. And if you read any one of his writings, what does he say all the time? Man, I give thanks to God every time I think of you. I am so thankful for you, he says. I am so thankful for your faith. Listen, you want energy to keep going? You want God's energy? Thank God for what you have. Thank God for what you still have and not that which you've just lost. Thank God, stop focusing on what you've lost, but thank God on top of that for the people that you see, for the people that you worship with, the people who serve you, the waiter, the waitress. Begin to give thanks for them and then actually say thank you to them and watch what happens to you inside out. Second thing we see in the story is celebrate. You know, under this umbrella of worship, if you want to begin changing your outlook, I mean, be thankful for the people around you, but then look at celebrate. Celebrate what? Celebrate God and who he is. Celebrate all those people that you're thankful for. Celebrate all the other things that you have in your life. Celebrate all the things that you have been, that have been hidden in the darkness, but are still present in your life if you'll take time and look at them. Look at this verse from Nehemiah chapter 8. And Nehemiah continued, he said, now go and celebrate with a feast 
of rich foods and sweet drinks and share gifts of food with people who have nothing prepared. This is a sacred day before our Lord. Don't be dejected and sad for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the people went away to eat and drink a, a festive meal, to share gifts of food and to celebrate with great joy because they had heard God's word and they understood him. Notice a couple of things. What is your strength, it says? The joy of the Lord is your strength. It's God's joy which sustains you. Listen, this is not some manufactured happy face. This is not somebody who says, well, I'm just going to be happy no matter what. No, the joy of the Lord sustains you. You see, when you are thankful in the crisis, when you celebrate God's goodness in the crisis, in the darkness, when you worship him, even with the morning, he gives to you the gift of joy. And the gift of joy provides your strength. But also notice it says that they went home to celebrate because it was Super Bowl Sunday. Doesn't say that. They went home to celebrate because it was New Year's Day. Doesn't say that. They went home to celebrate because sports were on TV. Didn't say that. It says they went home to celebrate because they had heard God's word. And they understood it. Friends, let me say to you again, get into God's word. If you don't know where to start, start reading the Psalms. Especially in the middle of a crisis. Start reading the Psalms. And then jump from the Psalms to the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then get done with them and go back to the Psalms. And just keep going back and forth. Take all the time you need. But just read those two portions. Psalms, Gospels. Watch what happens to you. Watch how God shows up. So how do you keep going? You worship him. Not by accident. You plan it. Some of us kind of say, well, I'm just waiting for God to show up and I'll worship him. Well, no, why don't you sit down and worship him and watch God show up? Now, let me get to the last part and we'll close. How do you make it last? Because one of the fears we have when we have to rebuild, the thought is, what if I'm rebuilding and it all falls apart again? What if it all goes south yet again? Well, friends, there's only one way. There's only one way to rebuild in such a way that it will last. So the way you start is with the morning. The way you keep it going is with worship. And there's only one way to make the rebuild last. There's only one way to make anything last. And that is you dedicate it to God. That's critical. See, most of our plans that go south along the way really haven't been dedicated to him. Because when they're dedicated to him, he's got this way of overseeing things in such a way that brings stability along the way. It's got to be dedicated to God. You see, the walls of Jerusalem, they were, they were going to be rebuilt. They were rebuilt in 52 days. But if you know the story, then it was time to dedicate and rebuild the walls to God. I don't have time to read it, but you can. Uh, and I hope that you will. It's only 13, 13 chapters. But if you, want to, if you want what you're rebuilding to last, then you have to give it to him. Now, hear me, me condense this story for you. So the walls are now done. The gates are done. And Nehemiah says it's time to dedicate this all to God. That's what we're going to do. So he assembles all of the priests that have been scattered throughout the country. All of the priests, families, he brings them back. On top of that, he goes and he gets every musician he can find. Any musician, any singer, any instrumentalist from across the country, he brings them all back. He gets them all assembled. He puts two big choirs together. He's going to take one choir and he's going to set them up the stairs on the wall around the city. He's going to start them in the north and have them go south. The other choir, he's going to start them in the south, have them go north. They're going to meet in the middle. But the whole time, these two huge choirs are walking the walls of Jerusalem and while they're walking, they're singing thanksgiving and praises to God. That's the picture. He gets everyone assembled but before any of that, here's our final verse. Nehemiah 12, 12 verse 30. The priest 
and the Levites cleansed themselves. And then they cleansed the people, the gates, and the wall. Now listen very carefully to these next words. The key is dedication, not determination. Everything is now ready and in place. The choirs are in place. The people are in place. Everything's ready. And he stops and he says, before I can do anything else, it's time to dedicate it all to God. Dedication is critical, not determination. Some of you are just full of determination. And that's good, but that's not enough. You see, determination is how you do it. Dedication is who you do it for. And if you're going to rebuild your life or your dream for you, you need to know it is just going to crash yet again and leave you empty. But not when you dedicate it to God and give it to Him. See, determination is how you do it. Dedication, who you do it for. The first thing they did, notice the story, the first thing they did before anything else, the priest, they cleansed themselves. They dedicated themselves before anything else. So, whatever the plan that you're working on, whatever the plan is that you're rebuilding, long before you dedicate it to God, you first have to dedicate yourself to God. That's how it works. Lord, I dedicate my children to you. And God says, no, 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 you first. Lord, I dedicate my spouse to you. Goodness knows they need you. And God would say, no, no, you first. I dedicate my home to you. My job, I'll give you my money. And God says, no, no, you first. Other things later, but you start with dedicating you. That's how it works. And the dedication of yourself isn't a one and done. It's a daily deal. Every single day, I have to start my day with, God, today is your day, and today I'm yours. So here's how we're going to end this morning. I'm going to wrap up a little differently. If you go back in the Old Testament, you'll see that whenever the people assembled, the priest or the priest would pray a blessing over the people. Now, they needed that because don't forget, in that day, God spoke to the people through the priest. So if God is going to bless the people, he blessed them through the priest. Now, don't forget, Jesus is our high priest, which means we get to go directly to God. So we don't need to have the priest or the pastor do a blessing, but there's still a beautiful picture to that. So here's how we're going to end. I'm going to end this morning with giving a blessing over the, all of you who attended. But I, I'm not going to just pray the blessing. We're going to sing it. But I'm not going to sing it. They're going to sing it. And you are going to remain seated. And if you want to sing, you join in. Words are on the screen. And if you prefer just to sit in this moment and say, Lord, I want your blessing on my life. And some of you this morning desperately need to know that God has a blessing for your life. So you just stay seated. And here's the other dynamic for our church leaders who are here. I'm going to ask you to stand and get in place and position. I've asked some of our church leaders who are here, some are elders or pastors. Many are traveling. Some are sick and not feeling well. But I've asked our different team leaders, husbands and wives, to position themselves in different places in the room. You're, you're not going to go to them, but you need to know something. I'm going to stand right over here. And while this blessing is being prayed to some over you, the church leaders are praying over you. Now, some of them may have their eyes open, some may have their eyes closed. Some may have their hands raised, some may not. If they know you by name, they're probably praying for you by name. But don't worry, you think, ah, oh, they don't know me. Eh, they know your face. Don't pray for your face. 
And for some of you, they know the back of your head. They'll pray for the back of your head. But don't be wrapped up and do they know me? Know that our church leaders are praying over you right now as this song is sung. And then I'll come back and end. Here we go. Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. The Lord bless you and keep you make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace sing amen Go before you and a thousand generations And your family and your children And their children and their children May his favor be upon you And a thousand generations And your family and your children And their children and their children May his favor be upon you and a thousand generations and your family and your children and their children and their children may his presence go before you and behind you and inside you all around you and within you he is 
face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May he turn his face toward you and give you peace and not just you but for generations for your family and for your children and their children and their children until Jesus comes. Amen. And God bless you. Happy New Year.